I don't know if I have the wherewithal to really preach this sermon as it should be preached, but I'll give it my best shot. It's a very interesting situation. Let's pray, and then we will get into this this story. Gracious God, we open your word, and we've been reminded this morning, Lord, of the different responses that people make when your word is proclaimed. Whether we read it or whether we hear it, Lord, it is your word. It's coming from you. And so I pray, Lord, that you'll help us to make the appropriate response. Fill us with your spirit this morning. May we be on fire for the Lord Jesus Christ. Give us a passion that is, is from you. And we thank you for people like Paul, Lord, who are willing to lay down their life, if necessary, to advance your cause. Give us that same spirit of dedication. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, as you heard in the children's story this morning, uh, Paul is traveling through Greece. Some of you have actually been to these places. I've not been there myself. Uh, would be a nice trip that you could send your pastor on, I suppose. But um, yeah, Sandy's saying I may not come back. Um, so we're in Athens. Athens, the sophisticated intellectual center of civilization. Five centuries before, you had people like Plato and Socrates and Aristotle. Don't know all the dates on them, but Athens in its heyday, five centuries before Paul, was a very important place. Paul obviously has heard of Athens. Most people had. And now he gets his opportunity to go there. He's pretty much going there as a tourist. He's just passing through. He doesn't, probably got no reason to think that he's been specially called to this place. He has the Macedonian call that's saying, hey, come and help us. And he's passing through Athens. And as he looks at this city of so-called sophistication, Probably a population of 10,000 people with 30,000 idols. Three idols to one person. That tells you something, huh? And something stirs within Paul. Something stirs within him. He's He's a good Jew. He knows what the commandments say. And he's a man who is living for the glory of God. And he cannot stay quiet. He's alone. He's waiting for friends to come to him. And God's Spirit moves in this man's life. And as we pick up the story in Acts chapter 17... What verses did I say? Beginning at verse 16, it says, While Paul was waiting for Silas and Timothy in Athens, he was greatly distressed. This is what this translation, the NIV says, greatly distressed. He was agitated. He's seen all this idolatry. 
He knows, he can obviously assume that very, very few, if any, understand the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. This place is full of idols. Two weeks ago, I mentioned what Paul did in Thessalonica and Berea. He didn't just preach about a sweet, meek and mild Lord Jesus Christ. Remember me saying then, he reasoned with the people. We need to learn to do this. If I use the word argument, maybe that has some negative connotations in your mind. But he built up his case. He wasn't just saying, trust in Jesus and your sins will be forgiven. He had to show, especially to Jewish people, that Jesus was the Messiah. And so in Thessalonica and Berea, he had been in the Jewish synagogue doing that very thing. And now as he takes on these so-called more educated people in Athens, he has to reason his cause. So first, what Paul saw. He saw the idolatry and his spirit stirred within him. And verse 17 says, and so he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks. We've said a number of times the synagogue, if they had a synagogue, sometimes he'd go to a place that had no synagogue. So then they would go where? By the river. This was the designated place for prayer. So he'd go by the river and he would seek his witnessing opportunities there. We need to think, where are the opportunities to talk to people about the Lord Jesus Christ? If we choose a rock concert, maybe nobody will hear us. But we do need to think of Seventh-day Adventists. Where would we go to? What is the equivalent of the synagogue? Or the marketplace? Or this morning, Mars Hill? What would be the equivalent places for you and I to witness and to seek those who want to follow Jesus Christ? So here he is in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks they would always come in. They're attracted to Judaism. Spirit of God is drawing them there. Paul knows that. He is the apostle to the Gentiles. As well as those in the marketplace, he's witnessing, he's reasoning day by day with those who happened to be there. So he's not just the tourist in Athens just wasting away his time. His spirit is stirred, and so he's reasoning in these different places, synagogue, marketplace, whoever will listen, telling them about the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we're not told in this passage today exactly what he said in the marketplace, for example. But somehow, some way, he would be telling them about the life, the death, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, the fact that he is coming back as King of Kings and Lord of Lords, all of these items would have been mentioned, I'm sure. Now it says in verse 18, a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. 
Athens, in those days, five centuries after its heyday, was still a place where they liked novelties. They liked new ideas. So we could think, well, there's nothing wrong with, with new ideas, is there? I would say it was the latest fad. They never seemed to be able to settle on one thing. Here, just two groups of philosophers are mentioned. Oh, by the way, have any of you studied philosophy? Anybody? Okay, so we have maybe four or five people that have done that. I did two quarters on philosophy, and I think those were some of the classes that I enjoyed the most. I always enjoyed my Bible classes the most, but philosophy, I really, really, there was something about it that attracted me. But I always felt there was more questions than answers. And here we have two representative groups, the Epicureans and the Stoics. Both had different philosophies. But did they have any place for this new teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ? So some of these so-called intellectual, sophisticated people, philosophers, said, what is this babbler trying to say? Now, I don't know what comes in your head when you hear the word, the word babble. Do you think of the Tower of Babel, for example? Do you see the confusion of languages? Did you catch what I said to the children about this seed-picking put-down? This derogatory way of, of putting Paul down. Now Paul, as far as I'm concerned, was one of the greatest minds that humanity has ever known. The guy was a genius in his own right. Full of the Holy Spirit. And it must have, must have been hard. When mind is meeting mind... Ideas are meeting ideas. It's, it's hard to put somebody down because of their religious background, because of the way they're dressed, the way they look, the color of their skin, whether they've been to Harvard or not. There's lots of different ways that, that we put one another down, right? And so Paul is, is having to feel that kind of insulting way of, of uh, talking about him. What is this babbler trying to say? Others said he seems to be advocating foreign gods. Now, if you know anything about Socrates, Socrates paid with his life for advocating other gods. Paul here has a very fine line to walk. He is going to witness he is going to share. But if he does it a little bit to the, to the right or a little bit too much to the left, then he'll probably be executed. But he will say what he needs to say. And God hopefully will give him the tact that he needs. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus Christ and the resurrection. Good news, 
the life, the death, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. How a man and woman, how humanity can be made right with God. How to get in that relationship with God. The whole of humanity, in a sense, is out of that relationship. Okay, how does God use Paul, you or I, whoever, to, to emphasize what Jesus did to bring mankind back into that right relationship? So they took Paul, brought him to a meeting of the Arapagus, this is Mars Hill, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. There's some of the archaeology, uh, some of the remnants of it. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we want to know what they mean. So here it looks pretty good when we read it this way. We, it's a new idea. We admit that. We really want to know. Well, how do you know that somebody really wants to know? I guess it's by the way that they respond to the message. And in parentheses here, it says, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. So you think if this is a tactful way of approaching the subject. For as I watch around and look carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So he's going to capitalize on this unknown God. This is going to be the bridge that he's going to build between his audience and himself. I'm going to proclaim to you this unknown God. And then we go into what Paul actually said to them. This is the first overt discourse to a Gentile audience. So again, I'm always asking the question, why does Luke include some things and excludes others? Here, this message is very important as far as this apostle to the Gentiles. And he's going to um, test the waters here and see if mind meeting mind, idea meeting idea is going to work. If you go through this, as we go through this, be looking for anything in, in the message that you could see would be in the Old Testament, but of course, he's not going to quote the Old Testament to a non-Jewish audience. He's not going to do very much of that. That would kind of just be irrelevant to the audience. They don't know the Bible. And if there's anything here that ties in with Greek philosophy, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. Now surely smart, educated people know that, right? Apparently not. Yes. 
You know, the Bible teaches, unless a person is born again, they don't understand spiritual things. It's not about being religious. It's not about being smart. It's not about being cultured. I think that one of the most cultured nations in Europe was Germany in the Second World War. And if you know the history of, of grabbing land, oppressing people, the Holocaust, so on and so forth, we know, we should know very, just from history alone, we should know that education and culture is not going to cut it, even in treating one another the right way, never mind worshiping the true God. So Noah, we're talking here of spiritual things. Spiritual things must be spiritually discerned. God's Spirit has to work in the individual to help them to understand even about the Creator God. Can we not see that in our Western world with this strong emphasis on evolution? Isn't this part of the three angels' message that is very important to Seventh-day Adventist? Fear Him. Who did what? Made heaven and earth. It's almost similar language to what we're reading here. It's, it's lifted from Genesis. It's lifted from the fourth commandment. It's very basic. It's so basic that you and I almost get bored even talking about it. But most people don't understand this. They don't understand that there is a creator God who has brought them into this world and is going to hold them accountable for the life that they live in this world. And why this, why this unknown God? Well, the text really doesn't tell us. We've got to use a bit of imagination, read between the lines or whatever. Maybe these Greeks just felt, well, we've got almost all the, the, the bases covered, but we still feel there's something we're missing. Well, hey, that's good to feel that there's something we're missing, right? Because when we're smug, self-satisfied, and have all the answers, the last person we will turn to is the Lord Jesus Christ and our Creator God. There has to be some sense of something missing. When I look at my own journey, when God brought me to Himself, this is a key ingredient, a sense of the unknown, a sense of dissatisfaction, a sense of all the things that I tried just not really satisfying enough. And that's why we say our hearts are empty, they're lonely, until we find rest in Jesus Christ. We are like a spirit just floating around the universe trying to find our place. And Jesus is, is the one who says, I am the place. I am the way. I am the life. It's in me. Paul knows that. Nobody in this audience knows that. Yes, they have religion, whether it be in the synagogue or whether it be in Greek, Greek culture, but they don't have the life of God within them. 
So he says here, the God who made the world, everything in it, the Lord of heaven and earth, doesn't live in temples built by hands. He's not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. Do you wake up in the morning and thank God that he's woke you up? That you can actually take a breath? A lot of people can't do that. They have to have a machine doing that for them. From one man he made every nation of men. Who was that? One man? Adam. Though this is really not part of my sermon, I'm going to throw it in. We cannot do away with those early chapters of Genesis. They are not optional. Somebody like Paul, even in, even in this situation with, with a non-Jewish audience, but especially when he's interacting with people who know their Bible a little bit, he builds his whole argument. Romans, Romans 5, for example, he builds his whole argument about the consequences of the first Adam. The repercussions of him being our representative. And then, of course, in a positive way, the repercussions of the last Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus himself referred to those early chapters of Genesis in, um, in a very positive, important way. So they're not optionals, they're not fairy stories. Um, there's deep, profound truth there that all the world through the first Adam has the legacy of sin and death and all the world or at least those who believe has the legacy of righteousness and life through Jesus Christ. So Paul in other places builds a lot of his theology on those er stories there early in the creation account. So from one man, Adam, he made every nation of men that they, that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he determined the times set for them and the exact places where they should live. So God has a plan. God has purpose. And the whole point of even where the nations are established is to bring people to him. Now, I don't fully understand all of that. I suppose we'd have to dig into history to try and put all the pieces together. Verse 27 says, God this, did this so that men would seek Him, perhaps reach out for Him, and find Him, though He is not far from each one of us. Isn't that an interesting comment? For in Him we live and move and have our being, as some of your own poets have said, we are His offspring. So here's Paul quoting from pagan philosophers because even in even in wrong philosophy or inadequate philosophy you're going to find some gems of truth god in his goodness has given his his words so we don't have to study all the religions of the world and all the religious writings of the world to find gems of truth we have what we need in the word of god but they are out there And Paul's not afraid of quoting them. 
And Luke's not afraid of putting it into his writings, which eventually became the Bible. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold, silver, or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance. Hmm, that's an interesting statement too. How did he do that? Isn't there something called the flood in the Bible? But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Now what does repentance mean? We need to repent to come to the Lord Jesus Christ, right? What does that mean? It essentially means turning around, going in a different direction, thinking differently about a given subject. So yes, this is true. This is a new ideology for the majority of people, and perhaps all of them who are listening to Paul. Now these are going to be the real creme de la creme. These are going to be the philosophers, the poets, the artists. They've got him there on Mars Hill. It's not everyone that can go and listen to Paul on Mars Hill. So he's got the intelligentsia there, and the intelligentsia, all the people in the marketplace need to repent, change their way of thinking, at least be open-minded to the possibility of there being a creator God who is the unknown God that Paul is telling them about, and that this unknown God has revealed himself through the Lord Jesus Christ. I think that's one of, the, one of the characteristics that I look for in people. Are they open-minded to at least consider something? And then the onus is upon you and I to try and establish our case and show that Jesus really was who he said he was. He really was the Messiah. He really was the Savior of the world. Nothing wrong with trying to convict people of their sin. As the Holy Spirit is, is working in their lives and, and as your message is, the Word of God is going forth, uh, we want repentance, a change, change of thinking. We want conviction in the heart. Something's missing. Something's not right in my life. And that problem is sin. And then, of course, offer them the solution to the sin problem, the Lord Jesus Christ. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man. So he's mentioned the man, Adam, and now he's mentioning the man without giving the name, the Lord Jesus Christ. So there's going to be a day of judgment for the whole of humanity. How do you feel about that? Every, everything you have ever done is recorded. Everything you have ever thought is recorded. Unlike the government or the IRS, God will miss nothing. And all you have there on your tax forms are deductions. 
nothing positive. Unless you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then you have a lot of additions. And a lot of things are put into your account. And this audience here needs to understand something of that. This is a solemn message, don't you think? Would you be brave enough to bring up a judgment hour message with the most educated people on planet Earth? So he has set a day. We don't know when that day is. Harold Camping doesn't know when that day is. We don't know when that day is, when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. I really like the idea of justice, not so much with my own life being examined, but when I think of people like Stalin and Hitler, Stalin, he seemed to get away with it. Don't you think? Have you ever read his life? The guy was so bad, and yet he was such a hard worker as he made this, these lists of people who needed to be liquidated. And you could be liquidated just for being his buddy. He didn't have to do anything bad. And he seemed to die just a normal death. Hitler, of course, committed suicide and would have been executed if he was tried and caught and tried and so on. But there's something about the idea of justice that strikes a chord with me that I think we need to hear in our generation. There is a judgment day. It will be a just. God is fair. People have had the opportunity to respond to Him. Maybe they've never heard about Jesus Christ. They've certainly never read a Bible, right? But they have consciences. God has His ways of communicating with people. And God has given proof of this to all men by raising Him, Jesus Christ, from what? From the death. Now, there's a lot of theology packed in here which which we don't have time to unravel all of it. But when Jesus Christ lived a perfect life, then there was the possibility that His perfect life could be credited to me to cover my imperfect life with His perfect life. At least the possibility is there. Why? Because He is the representative man. You may not like the idea of representation, but that's the way God has ordained things. Adam, the representative of the human race. The Lord Jesus Christ, another new representative. And then, of course, everything he did in his life was geared towards dying on the cross. Was his life so perfect that his death would be considered by God as meeting all of the demands of a holy God. 
But we really don't know that from Calvary, do we? My God, my God, why, why, why have you forsaken me? He did say, it is finished. But that can be interpreted in different ways. So what is there around Calvary that tells us that the representative man has indeed gained the victory? It's all to do with the resurrection. The resurrection is like the cornerstone of the building of Christian theology. If you can show the resurrection didn't happen, Christianity crumbles. Paul deals with that in the book of Corinthians. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, our faith is what? Worthless. Vain. Meaningless. You cannot be a Christian unless you believe Christ rose from the dead. You may not understand it. I certainly don't understand it. But do you believe it? His life, his death, his re- these are, the, these are the, the main features that we need to bring out as we're witnessing two people. Life, death, resurrection, and throw in the ascension where Christ was glorified. There's another evidence of his acceptance. This morning we tied it in with spiritual gifts. In Ephesians, Paul says when he was exalted in heaven, he gave gifts to men. So spiritual gifts should not be interpreted as some some, uh, outside study that we want to tag on in our Sabbath school quarterly. It's, it's, It's the evolution. Can I use that word in the right way? It's the evolution of the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. He really is alive. He really is alive in heaven, and He really has poured gifts out on the earth. And you and I who are believers are the recipients of those wonderful gifts. Why? So, so that we can, serve hum- we can serve the church, we can serve humanity, we can build up the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's probably no area of Christian theology that's been attacked more than the resurrection. Satan knows how important that is. Is it a mystical resurrection? Is it a physical resurrection? Did Jesus really have the human body? Yes, he did, and it was a glorified body. And it was kind of like a first fruits of, of what our body will be like one day. All of, our, all of our life is wrapped up in his life. His life, his death, his resurrection, his, his ministry in heaven. Where Paul says in another place in Ephesians that we're sitting in heavenly places now. Don't push everything off to the future. Yes, we call ourselves Seventh-day Adventists. And the Adventist emphasizes the second return of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
But what about calling ourselves seven days Adventist, where every day we're living this powerful Christian life? And his life is being manifested through our life. Without his spirit, we would be nothing. We would just be empty shells mouthing off, just like these Greek philosophers were doing. They were sincere, but they were so wrapped up in idolatry that many of them could not see or respond to the truth. It says in verse 32, when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, not a good response. Hey, their eternal destiny hinges on this. You don't want to sneer about these subjects. But others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. We don't know if they ever got the opportunity. At that, Paul left the council. A few men became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius. Do I pronounce that right? Dionysius, a member of the Arapagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. Wow. It's almost 10 after 12, and I'm just doing the introduction here. Time flies when you're having fun, right? This section of Acts is really crucial, I think, to where we're living in this world. Most of us are living in the Western world that prides itself on its education and its culture. I know people that live for the symphony. They live for the art gallery. And if these things are put in their proper perspective, they have their place. But we can never worship them. And we can never allow any of these, this so-called culture, education, nothing is allowed to get in the way of our relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. But rather, it should enhance. If you and I are educated, I once went to an art gallery in England. This was a school trip from Newball College. And um, Dr. Woodfield uh, was the one leading the trip. And we had this expert. Now, how do you know he's an expert? Well, he knows more than me, so he's an expert. I don't know anything about art. So I'm in this art gallery, and he says to the class, look at this painting. Don't know what the painting was now, some famous painting. And we looked, and we looked, and we looked, and, well, what do you see? So, uh, you know, everyone, or many of us had had said something half intelligent of what we saw. And then he says, yeah, but do you see this? And as he said, do you see this? We suddenly saw it. We hadn't seen it before. And do you see this? And do you see how the lines work? This, you realize very quickly that this famous painter had a plan, had a purpose. He didn't just throw this thing on the canvas. And that's the only time that that's ever happened to me in my life, just one time, and I never, ever forgot it. It made an indelible impression on me that the artist is at work with a plan, with purpose, and there are things on that canvas that at first I couldn't see until somebody pointed those things out to me. Isn't that a good illustration of what Paul is trying to do here? with these educated people. He knows they're educated. He's going to be stretched to the max to meet mind with mind. 
No matter how clever Paul was, he's still going to be stretched. And yet we see also that the education, the culture, whatever it might be, the philosophy, it's not enough to get in the kingdom of God. There has to be a submission, a humility. Pride cannot be allowed to get in the way. A submission unto the ways and the workings of God. And when that happens, then the key to the kingdom is opened up to us. We see things that we never saw before in this life, in the life to come. This universe is big. Eye has not seen, ear has not heard the things that God has prepared for those who love Him. Let's make sure that we're trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, that all of the idols in our lives, we're allowing God's Spirit to move them out. Don't want anything to get in the way of our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank You for Your Spirit which You have placed within us, Lord. And there is no place for idolatry in the Christian's life. We don't want anything to be a barrier between You and us. We certainly don't want to sneer and to mock Your messengers or the message that they bring. We thank You for the fruitage that Paul got. It seems small, but it's precious. And we have lessons here that when he went to Corinth, he determined to preach nothing but Jesus Christ and Him crucified. We can learn lessons from this too, Lord. Pray, Lord, that we will respond to You and to Your Spirit in the way that is pleasing to You. We thank You again for our Lord Jesus Christ. In His name we pray. Amen.